Hello, and welcome to this download from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Philip Hoare, author of Leviathan, or The Whale, a fascinating blend of natural, social, literary, and personal history. I asked Philip first about the whale as a creature of myth. Well, I think you know, that's probably why my book is called Leviathan, which is really the, the biblical name for the whale, and the, that sort of ancient conception of, a, of an animal which is unknown. Because I think really what gripped me in the writing of the book and the whole notion about the whale is that the fact that it cannot be seen, that for most of, most of human history, our relationship to the whale has been necessarily mysterious because we humans cannot see the whole of the whale. The whole mis- mystery about a whale, about the way the ancients saw the whale and sort of the whale has been seen up, up until relatively recent times, has been almost like a composite it's almost like a sort of a jigsaw animal. It's like almost like a chimera. Um, that's why whales were just depicted with extraordinary monstrous teeth and, you know, this sort of straight, you know, those medieval etchings of whales. So it's really very, very relatively recently that we really do know even what a whale really looks like. Because f- for centuries, we saw them dead on beaches or we saw them disappearing beneath the waves. So we, we had no sort of real fix on them. And so they they were really in the same category as properly mythical monsters. Absolutely. You know, the distorted way that whales were presented continues right up to the 18th century. Even at the end of the 18th century, the French Academy agreed that there were 15 or 16 different types of sperm whale. There's only one, but they literally believed that, you know, just because when when a whale is stranded on a beach, it's like a sort of deflated tyre. It has no sense of its life. And Melville very famously writes about a whale never fully, fair fully floated itself for its portrait. And that he says that the, the whale will remain unpainted to the last. And that's really true. It's really only within uh, the last generation, only really since the 1960s, that we've actually seen whales in their natural element through underwater photography and film. And that we realise exactly what they look like. And whales went from being semi-mythological beings straight to being the objects of the most brutal commerce, didn't they, and, and exploitation. There was, there, was, there was no sort of intervening stage of, of reaching any understanding of them, you know, the, the way you might do with cattle or horses. You know, people, people immediately, as soon as they could get a fix on them, that fix was to exploit them commercially. Absolutely. I mean, whales were regarded very quickly, as soon as man could hunt them, as a resource. They were a God-given resource. Um, The 18th century whalers rationalised their pursuit as being almost a holy pursuit of these animals because they were God-given. And in a way, they were because they were just sort of such magnificent repositories of energy because until the discovery of petroleum in the uh, mid-19th century, most of the Western world was lit from whale oil. And at one point in the book, you enumerated all the products in the 20th century which were made from whales, and I was astonished by the the vast range of of those things. Can you just suggest some of those things, because there's an astonishing range? Absolutely. Well, within yours and mine generation, I mean, certainly our parents... Wore whale cosmetics, our mothers wore whale cosmetics, lipstick, powder. 
photography, the gelatin uh, in, in camera film was made from whale. Munitions were used, uh, whales, uh, nitroglycerin was made from whales. During the First World War, I mean, whales became part of the war process. A, a real irony given the sort of placidity of these creatures. And even up to the 1960s, when Britain was still whaling, we were still a whaling nation in the 60s, we were still importing sperm whale oil to treat leather. They are tremendously useful creatures in a way. And that's why it's so recent, our change. I mean, the change from whale hunting to whale watching has been incredibly abrupt. Whale hunting wasn't banned officially worldwide until 1986. So, you know, the same people who, who were whale hunting in places like the Azores and Australia, New Zealand, in America, are the same people now who actually are whale watching. It's that recent. Something which came across from your book was that although the whale hunting may have largely stopped, and certainly in the scale that it was going on at its peak, nonetheless, there are all sorts of remaining threats in the marine environment that are man-made, and they, they may ultimately be more threatening than, than the whalers. Well, of course, this is the irony, is, is that uh, whaling might have stopped, um, except for nations such as Japan and Norway. But the threats, as you say, to whales now are, are, are immense. I mean, they're hit by ships, they get entangled by fishing line, they're affected by global warming, the changes in, in their feeding patterns... Anthropogenic noise, the noise made by human beings, so not only from traffic, but also from sonar, from military sonar and sonar used for detecting oil, are huge threats to, to the whale's well-being. Because, I mean, these are animals which live within an environment of sound. Sound is, is the defining um, sense for a whale. So these are serious threats. Going back to the 19th century, it seemed to me that, the, that your book would almost be inconceivable without Herman Melville and... Moby Dick, and that, that looms large in every sense in the book, and that you were at least as fascinated with him and that book as you are with the, with the whales. Well, I think, as you say, no study of the whale in a, in a cultural or literary point of view could ignore Moby Dick. And Moby Dick is as big as the whale itself. Melville's creation of Moby Dick and Melville's relationship to the whale in that book is absolutely extraordinary. It's one of the reasons why most people actually don't get through the book is because he is so obsessive about the way he treats the whale. He's so digressive in the way he, he, he describes every aspect of whales and whaling. It really stands still now as the most important document we have on 19th century whaling. Uh, but more than that, for Melville, the whale becomes a metaphor and an allegory for many aspects of certainly 19th century society, uh, a society which, you know, was torn between belief and science, which was riven by the pressures of industrial revolution. He was coming from a, a new republic, which was trying to establish its importance within the world. And it did that through whaling. I mean, really, whaling is America's first global impact, the first global impact it has on the world's economy. For Melville, was torn between writing this a romantic novel, celebrating this great sort of pioneering aspect of, of a new republic, but at the same time, he was very aware that the whale was under threat from this pursuit, and also that for him, it became... I mean, he really is almost a proto-environmentalist in that he sees that... The, the greed, the personification of the whale as a resource 
is ultimately unsustainable. He, he saw that. He saw that um, back in 1851. But he also invests the whale with extraordinary qualities of some kind of metaphysical power. For Ahab, who's pursuing the whale, the whale is impossibly an embodiment of evil. And Melville steps back and says, no, th this is impossible. No, no animal can, em can embody evil. And in a way, that's very analogous to modern times when we invest people or places or ideas with evil. And Melville was really looking forward to those aspects of the modern world, I think. You mentioned before that our knowledge of whales is very recent and it's still very partial. And I was struck by the fact that in the book you say that until the 1960s there had been no claims made for whale intelligence at all. So they, they had been mythical monsters, they had been God-given resources, but until very, you know, within our lifetimes, nobody had actually asserted or studied the fact that these were intelligent creatures. Well, absolutely. And uh, indeed, one of the whales in which I'm particularly interested, the sperm whale, has the largest brain of any animal that's ever lived. It's a 17-pound brain. Now, what it does with that brain is a moot point, but increasingly the latest investigation, scientific investigation, indicates that it has a very complicated neocortex, which is consistent with the ability to think intelligently, to think abstractly, which is an extraordinary notion. The latest research also indicates that sperm whales have a culture, which they pass down from generation to generation. They certainly have a language. They have a, a, a humpback whale sing, but um, sperm whales click. They they have a series of clicks, which is almost like a sort of Morse code, which is, is interpreted by different by whales within their own tribe. And there are discrete tribes of sperm whales, which exist next to each other and have discrete dialects. More and more, we are realising there's a degree of intelligence about the cetaceans, the, the whales and dolphins, which we have not yet really plumbed. I think for me, the single most poignant fact that you communicated in the book was the longevity of these animals and how we had seriously underestimated the longevity. And there is material proof that they can live to extraordinary ages and yet hunting and other forms of marine damage mean they don't they don't reach those those ages T tell, tell me a little bit about first of all how, how we know how long they live and um, you know and what it means for whale societies not to have that lifespan it probably is one of the most salutary facts I think I certainly discovered during my research that bowhead whales which are a kind of right whale which live in the arctic are uh, still hunted by the Indians. There is, a, there is a, a, a dispensation for Aboriginal hunting from the International Whaling Commission. So these whales are still being hunted in very small numbers by the Inuit. But in the 1990s, bowheads were caught by the Inuit, which were found to have embedded in their blubber ancient harpoon heads, harpoon heads which dated back 150, 190, in one case, 111 years making that whale at least that old. I mean, it must have been mature for it to have been harpooned, so it must be even older than 211 years old. Scientific research into levels of an aspartamine acid in the eyes of a, of a whale and other ageing techniques have established this is true. So these are probably the longest-lived animals on Earth. And, of course, the irony is that, that you know, nowadays an, an Inuit can come along and harpoon one and that's the end of that. It's extraordinary. I mean, these whales were alive before Victoria ascended the throne, even before Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. 
the trouble is, is that when you take out individual animals of that age from a group, if we accept that these animals have a culture which is to do with a group and to do with passing down information from generation to generation, if you take out individual animals from that, that, that breaks that link. So we don't know what effect that has on whale societies, but it certainly must be severe. How sanguine do you feel about the, the future for whales? It's very interesting because certainly I, I was speaking to Richard Sabin, who's the curator of sea mammals at the Natural History Museum, is probably the, one of the country's most preeminent whale experts. And he was saying that since the um, 1987 moratorium on whale hunting, blue whales have been swimming up the Irish Sea, which is an extraordinary notion, really. And there's definitely evidence of recovery of whale populations. Um, this summer, only this summer, the humpback whale was officially delisted as an endangered animal. But that's not to say that these animals are going to survive. I mean, there are so many different threats to their environment. We really don't. And also, it's so difficult to keep track of them. You can't really tag them very easily. I mean, there are entire species of whales, such as the beaked whales, that I mean, we have only ever seen dead animals, skeletons in some case. There are entirely huge mammals living out there. I mean, these are 30-foot-long animals, which we have never seen alive. And they possibly might go extinct before we ever do see them alive. So I'm on one hand encouraged by um, much of the sort of great work that's gone on in recent years, but also at the same time so disheartened really by our continuing ignorance, really. Lest listeners get the impression this is a book written in libraries from research papers, you have immersed yourself in the whales environment and encountered whales. Can you say a little bit about what that experience has been like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have had, you know, over the past five years of writing this book and the past eight years or so of whale watching, had sort of close encounters with whales. But the closest has been in the Azores, uh, which are the islands in the middle of the Atlantic, very good uh, feeding ground for sperm whales who particularly like the, those deep waters where they feed on, on squid. And uh, last summer, I dove there with um, a snorkel with, with sperm whales, which was the single most extraordinary experience of my life because... These are, you know, these are the world's largest predator. I mean, these are fearsome toothed whales. They're not, not the cuddly humpbacks. They're not baleen whales. Um, they coo- could and have swallowed human beings. And I came uh, close enough as I am to you now. I could have easily touched this whale. And I was extremely frightened, extremely frightened. I mean, they're very big animals to be in the water with. For, you know, for a human being, the relationship between you and a whale in the water is overwhelming. The first, thing I did was lose control of my bodily functions and then I then I then I realized this whale was coming towards me and I thought it was going to just ram me and then I felt rather than heard its sonar its echolocation in my ribcage I could feel it echolocating it was and I could feel it was creating this kind of MRI image of me in its head and I realized that I was entirely encompassed in its world i was adjudged not worthy of interest certainly not worthy of of eating and this whale sort of came up sidled past me i saw its eye very close and then it dove perpendicularly into the black below 